I have been um, thinking lately about two things because of having conversations with you all. Um, one is about loneliness and one is about hope. And, um, and not just you all, but people around. And what it, what it brought me to think about, because in, in the case of hope, hope is something that can often be connected to our own sense of what we hope for the world and whether that seems like it's going in the direction we want. And, um, and so time is involved, right? Our sense of time, our sense of whether it's tied up in our notions of progress or things are getting better or they're getting worse. And the way we feel into that and what it is to have energy to respond compassionately. And it, it, it brought to mind three ways that we embody time in our practice. The way we practice time and none of them are the time of will the way I see the world manifest the way I want it to. None of them are that time. That is not a time we actually practice in, in, in Zen Buddhist practice anyway. It's a it, that's a time we're kind of suspicious of a little bit as maybe the source of suffering. And... Um, but the times we do practice, none of these will come as a surprise if you've been doing this for a little while, but one is the time that matures through the practice of zazen, through the practice of meditation, which is a slow letting go, sometimes very slow, letting go of comparing the world to the thoughts in our mind and judging the world by the thoughts in our mind. And so constructing time in that way, which is I have a thought of the past, I compare it to my present experience, and that's time. But as we start to let go of that way of being involved, there is a way we practice time in meditation that is about here, now, 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 now. There's this moment and there's only this moment. This isn't going to come as a surprise, right? We talk about this quite a bit. There is this moment and there is, that's the only moment we know. All of the other things, although I'm going to it's more complex than what I'm about to say. But all of the other things are thoughts, memories, future projections, things that we're doing with our minds. And if we grasp those as the way things should be, then we suffer. We seem to have to learn this for a very long time. 
So as that matures, as we sit and at first we come to our breath, just to give this busy mind something to focus on for a while, we then settle into the breath and the body, we settle into a different way of knowing the world, which is the way the body knows the world, not the way we think about it. And there, what is, what slowly comes to being is a simple presence with everything that is. Pain comes up, that's now, that comes, that goes. Thoughts come up, that's now, that comes, that goes. And the Buddha pointed toward this because this is a way of freedom. Every time that a habit of our body and mind happen, we have a moment of unconsciously following through with that, or we have an opportunity for freedom at that point. And so everything's happening here. The thoughts are arising here, the freedom's happening here, the suffering is happening here, it's all happening here. Not somewhere else, not in some other place. So through Zazen we practice with that kind of time. But ritual, and Zazen is a form of, a, it's a ceremony, it's a ritual, it's a ritual of manifesting in that way. And slowly that moves into everything we do. Dogen says, bring Zazen mind to everything you do. In other words, bring nowness, hereness, the release into what is without grabbing onto it and trying to make some egoic event out of just the fact that life is arising as it is. It doesn't mean that we won't feel pain. It doesn't mean that we won't feel joy. We don't become some emotional flat line. But all of that we let move too. We let that move through. And Zazen allows over time a capacity for whatever the body is feeling with the world to move. To do what it needs to do without our fighting. one way of thinking about time, one way of an embodying time as continual presence. And in that way, the Buddha faced the very same moment we do. This one. It wasn't a different moment, it was this moment. We all have, we're all in this moment. But then there's another way that we practice with ritual, and I would say that, and this is a, a big aspect, and at first glance it seems almost contradictory to the first one, which is ancestral time. Ancestral time is something we embody all the time. You may not know you're doing it, but it's, we're doing it all the time. We offer to the Kaisando, the ancestral altar, first thing in the morning. Our entire service is about building merit so that we can give that merit away to our ancestors and Buddhas and Bodhisattvas. We're contextualized, our entire practice, our entire tradition is contextualized within the gifts of ancestors 
There's not a word I can speak that is not a gift of my ancestors. There is not a ritual practice that can be carried forward that is not a gift of ancestors. Every single, this is very, um, not what is being taught in a very post-European enlightenment individualist culture where we're the cause of everything ourselves. We've made the choices. We have the total freedom. I decide what I do. All nonsense. <laughs> Complete load of nonsense. Every single thought that I have is only possible because of the language I've inherited. And that is from ancestors. Is only from the tradition that I've inherited, and that is ancestors. There are complete limits on what is possible for me because of my heritage. The limits and the possibilities of what I am are heritage. So we wake up in the morning, and it's the first thing we recognize. Right? If we're living in residential practice, it's the first thing we recognize. It's very common in um, home practice within the East Asian traditions from which Zen comes, that the first thing you do is recognize your ancestors. So for me, I put, you know, I do that and I recognize them first thing in the morning, whether I'm in my own home or it's formal with the Kaisando and it's the Buddha ancestors. And you put, traditionally, you put tea on the altar. For me, I put coffee because my ancestors didn't drink green tea, they drank <laughs> coffee. And so it seems a little silly to give them green tea. They'd wonder what I was doing. <laughs> but in doing that first, I had the experience the other day where I forgot to do it for various reasons. I sat down and I had my coffee and I, after the first sip, I had realized I hadn't done it, and I felt embarrassed. I feel sad actually saying it. Because who am I to go first before them? Now it's complicated, right? Our relationship to our ancestors are complicated because we may have ancestors that engaged in violence. We may, have, we may have ancestors where one group of the ancestors actually treated the other group of the ancestors badly. We may have difficulty honoring ancestors, even though they've given us everything. But I would offer that this difficulty is an egoic self need to not, to do two things, not feel the pain of that tradition, and two, put themselves above it. Mm -hmm. Oh, they did these terrible things, and so therefore I need to just not have a relationship with them. Well, who am I? As if I'm not inherited that? As if that's not a part of me? So to, to let that in, now, the interesting thing, the wonderful thing I think about ancestral time is sometimes we say, 
okay, there's this absolute and there's this relative, right? And the absolute is that there's no self and, and there's no separation and there's all of these things. And then the relative is there's all these particulars and, there's, and, and we're individual beings and all of that. So in one case, there's no separation. In other case, there's discernment. These are one reality, but two ways of talking about it. But in the case of, of ancestral honoring, it goes back and back and back and back and back until it's everyone. It goes in the relationship of ancestral time, I am both recognizing the particularity of my ancestry and that there is nothing here but the inheritance of all things. And so there is nothing here to separate off. I have in that gesture both the particularity of who I am and the complete interconnectedness of who I am. I, I am the same gesture, in the same honoring, in the same caring. And so to know that if we practice presence and the way we talk about it in terms of the Zazen way, we can become confused and think that somehow that is about eradicating, like complete presence is about eradicating um, this other way of living in time which is about linearity and being from people and giving on to people and caring for the next generations and coming from the next generations. I think this is a real error. I think actually when the two come together, what we recognize, what is clear in our hearts, in our solar plexus, is what we've been told by so many traditions, which is all of our ancestors are here. That they're all completely present in this moment. That there is no reality where they can be gone because there is this moment. And in this moment are the causes and conditions and effects and heritages of all other moments, which are never anything other than this one. And so they're all completely present. Everything is completely present. So why do we, so it's not about simply my mind being present. It's about the presence of all things in this moment. There is no room for loneliness in that realization. It is not possible to be alone. The mistake we make is that we don't have the rituals in our lives to awaken us to the reality of that. And so we have to start ritualizing our life in a way so that there isn't this confusion of a single person sitting in the middle of a bunch of other single people. If everything that I can do is because of my ancestors, then there's no single person. It's not possible to be solitary. Now I would argue that 
those not yet born, are, uh, my feeling is those not yet born are also completely here. And this is how, and this is where we get to hope. Hope is, in my experience, and you guys can test this out. Don't believe it. Test it out. Hope is the not yet born. If tomorrow I were to say, and it were to be true, that there will never be another human born on this planet, that we're the end, what would that do to hope? Would it even be a possibility? Could we even hope if there was no future life? And if the answer to that is no, which I suspect for most of us it would be, the answer to that is no, then it is because of them that we can hope. It is their possibility within us. It is the not yet born within us that are kind of the specters of what is to come that are, in, are the seeds of what it is to feel faith, hope, everything that energizes us. So from the past, we receive everything that is possible for us, and from, from the so-called past, and from the so-called future, we receive the reason for doing it. Without that, there is no reason. Even in, I mean, we can drop into we can drop into a pure presence and drop all that away, and that's fine. But I don't think it was ever meant to be in a pure presence whereby we're not humans. It's about rolling that all together into this moment and realizing that it is the honoring of our ancestors and the caring for those to come that make us human beings. Many native traditions, there's this, they, there's, the word adult isn't so much used. The word becoming a, a true or a full human is used. What it is to become a true or a full human. And in some ways, I think we stay in an adolescent state if we don't um, manifest an ancestral time if we don't understand ourselves as receiving everything from ancestors and the only way to pay them back, which we cannot do, is to ensure that we're caring for the generations to come. That's the only possible way. And we still won't make it up. How do I make up everything I am? How do I repay everything that I am? The humility of that recognition lands us, at least in my experience, on the ground. We feel our place. There's a... Um, I told a few people this story. There's this belief, I don't want to say belief, there's this, a truth to the Tutukil Maya. And I believe it's a truth. Whether it's factual or not, I'm not interested in, but I believe it's a truth. Which is that 
if the people in the community do not move through the rites of passage in a very specific and clear way, that when they die, their souls are the wrong shape to go into the next world. And so they get stuck around the village, much like hungry ghosts in our tradition. Right? And so they're lingering, and they're kind of feeding off the village. And over time, if that happens enough, if there's a degradation in the care for people moving into full humanness, then so many begin to feed off the village that drug addiction happens, violence against people's partners begin. They actually name all of the violences and addictions and things that overtake communities because the path to full humanness was not cared for. To me, if I look around at our current society, that feels very, very true. There is something about not caring for ancestral time and not caring for our maturation into full humanness, which means in being embedded in this earth in a deep and clear way, knowing where we come from. Because in total presence, we know we're the earth. There's no question about it. There's no conversation about am I the earth or not the earth. When all of the storytelling drops away, I am this. And there is nothing extra. This is what I am. And so you can see that in the moment, the earth and all of life is what I am. And in linear ancestral time is my ancestors who I am, who I'm for, and I'm always returning that. As a full human, I'm returning that. And so these rituals, these practices that we take on, in, in my experience, it, it's very um, challenging and difficult to accept because we're trained in such a different way. We're trained to be individuals concerned about our nuclear families and saving money for them, and th that's the focus. And I'm not saying this is some bad thing. I'm just saying we have a very atomized understanding of what it is to be people. We don't even go to the level of the village, and I'm not sure many of us, many of us no longer have. Some of us still do, but many of us no longer even have in our bodies what a village feels like what that is. Very strange for humans. Most of our life has been that. Most of our time on this, in this world has been bands and villages. Strange that we no longer, some, many of us no longer can touch that and what it is to bring it back and what the role of Sangha is in bringing that back. So there's a third. There's a third way we practice time. These aren't necessarily different from each other, but just, it's like turning different facets. Which is leave no trace. Right, we have this saying, and this happens in everything we do, we have this saying of leaving no trace. And it's an interesting phrase because it doesn't mean that our actions don't have effects or that we should try to be in the world in some way that doesn't 
change anything. It's by Buddhist, by Buddhist orthodoxy, that's not possible, right? Everything's changing, we're interacting with everything, and we are part of the change. So that is not, when it's saying leave no trace, that's not it. And it's not, and our activity will leave a trace. If we, if we work in a garden, there will be traces. If we clean a room, there are traces. If there, so when we say leave no trace in a room, one way we go to it is, well, leave it the way that we came. Yes, that's one way, is to leave it as we found it even maybe a little better, but that, you know. And, um, and that's a big part of our work practice, is to leave no trace. But many of the things we do are very much about leaving traces. We repair things, we garden, we, we plant food, we do all kinds of things that leave traces. So clearly the leave no trace is not that. So the leave no trace then, which many of you know, is this notion of karma, right? Is to not leave a karmic trace, to not grasp the self as separate from the activity. It's not me doing the activity, it's not about me, it's not about, look, I clean the room, look how great I am, or I garden, look how great I am, or the whole world coming back to this one, to this one, to this one, to this one, all my activity about me in some way. This is the trace leaving. Right? This is the trace we don't want to leave. This is the trace we don't want to leave in our activity. And in the broader sense, I think all of this way of talking about time is very relevant to the current ecological situation, is we don't want to leave our self-grasping on the earth, on other species. Why should other species pay for my self-indulgence? They have not earned that. So there is a... Um, there is this deep question about what it is, or to ask the question in all of our activity, to leave no trace of myself. And myself being false self, grasping self, separate self, the self that thinks it's separate from the world and acting on the world, the self that thinks that everything's going this way. I'm deciding, I'm willing, I'm doing things. The world needs to be the way that I see it. That self is the self we don't leave what Zen would call big mind or true self is the self of the world arising as me without separation. There still is a location. I'm located. I have eyes that are seeing different things than you right now. I'll die at a different time. There's a being located here. But it's not the one we think it is. It's whatever is arising right now. So this being is all of your faces mostly. And wherever these words are coming from. But there's not some Gregor Cosin that can be like separated out and is the cause of all of that activity. 
So the activity's happening, and that, that activity, interestingly, if, if we trust what, what the Buddha and what the ancestors have told us, that activity doesn't leave a trace. That activity is just life being life. When the mind has stopped grasping separation, then life is life. Then the myriad things realize themselves. And um, and we don't leave our mark. So even if we're going to clean a room, if we clean the room from the place of rigidness, that it must be clean, then we will leave our trace all over the room. Suzuki Roshi said, don't clean the room to clean the room, just start. Just do the next thing and it will be clean. I think we can become frozen in our activity because we think we have to have it all figured out before we start the activity. I need to know what the clean room is going to look like. I need to know what the future is going to be. I need to know what is going to be a world without suffering and then I'll get started. Once I'm clear on those things, in my own mind. But we don't. And we can't. And they'll be wrong. All of the thoughts and ideas won't be right. They'll miss the mark. So to just begin from a place of presence and recognizing that everything has been given to me as a gift and that I am attending to separation in a loving way so that I'm not leaking it all over the place. If all of this is ritualized in our day, if we really take care and put those rituals in place, then there is a, over time, I, I have faith in this, over time, there is, a, there is an erosion, there is a giving up of, there is a quieting of the one who is hopeless and lonely. There's no hook for it anymore. There's no place for that because they're rooted in a, an understanding of the world that isn't what's going on. And I don't want to make it sound like this is all on us separately to figure this out. Because I think that can cause harm to think that way. There is, things, life is painful. There's another, um, I'm reading this book on the Tutu Hill Maya now, which is why it's coming up. The, the, um, there's another um, story that was told in there that, that the belief is, is that at birth, the child goes from being a being of water to a being of grief. To a being of grief. Goes from being a being of water at birth to a being of grief because there is um, there is an there is an ever it's very powerful to actually say 
It's probably true. There is an endless desire to return to their mother's heartbeat throughout all of our human life. That's just there. And that the first cry is the grief of that separation. And um, so to, to be clear that grief is such a, it's not just about getting our spiritual life in order and understanding time properly and then it's all tidy and good. We're, we're going to grieve, and grief is often the most appropriate thing. And it's often the degree of the grief is the degree of the love. So it's, um, but, 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 and, however we want to say it, um, it must be done in community. I think that's the thing that is, is the, maybe the hardest thing for us in this time, is to have the time to make the time to put into the ritual community that will hold our lives. we hold on to this belief that I will figure it out. I don't think I will. I don't think we will figure it out. I'm not sure that's the way it happens. I think it happens by coming together and shifting the way the body and the heart and the mind are cultivated so that we become beings that know themselves connected to all things. Which means that our days change and our ways of moving through those days change and our rituals change and our lives change in that way. I think I wanted to talk about this because I just recognize that these are hard times. I think we're all clear on that. And that the world, the, the, the circumstances are kind of smashing everything. If there was any sense of things being stable, it's been kind of smashed, mushed into the ground. And we don't know. And our healing and clarity might come from not trying to know. actually just staying here in community with the grief of the world with the confusion with each other and moving through our practice together and then some it doesn't mean do nothing it's just that our activity may or may not be the thing no i won't say activity our thinking will unlikely not be the will be will unlikely be the thing that clarifies it for us. Not that there's a problem with thinking. Thinking is wonderful. I'm a professor at a seminary. I like to think. <laughs> um, it's not enough on its own. It's not enough without the heart's wisdom. It's not enough without what we call hara or womb or what, however you feel this. 
It's not enough without these other wisdoms of the body that are connected deeply to all things. It's not enough. And we keep going back to the watering hole of thinking alone. And um, it leaves us dry. We have to become something else put together. So I'll stop there. Maybe there are thoughts. Thank you. Oh, and I'll say one last thing. In the chant that opens this, we say, um, oh, now I'm missing the line. In the past, help me with the, you know the line that I'm trying to get to, Buddhas of old were as we, we in the future shall be, Buddhas and ancestors of old were as we, we in the future shall be Buddhas and ancestors, one Buddha and one ancestor. This is speaking to all of these times together. And the, the Buddhas and ancestors of the past were the same as we were, are. They had to work through their stuff. We will be Buddhas and ancestors if we do the same thing. That is our ancestral time in full flow, everything being handed down and the practice being given to us. And we are one Buddha and one ancestor in this moment. Nothing is missing. So that is pointing to all of it together, which is what a full human is. So now I'll stop. Thank you. Thoughts? Laura. Um, maybe I got this wrong, but I remember in the past we used to talk about the, how hope wasn't a kind of concept in Buddhism, and in fact it's a, it's a problematic concept. Yeah, I think on its own it kind of is. Yeah, so it's kind of interesting to hear you speak about the role of hope in practice, and anyway, I think the talk, so can you discern that? Yeah. Okay, so the question is, in the past I, I talked about hope being kind of problematic, and now I'm talking about hope again that doesn't sound as problematic. <laughs> <laughs> this is a good thing about Zen, you can kind of just contradict yourself and it's always fun. <laughs> um, hope is often our own egoic push out into the world. We have ideas about the world, what the world should be, and we hang our happiness on whether that manifests or not, exactly in the way that we want it to. But we don't know anything, right? I mean, that whole action of like thinking that we know how things should be, um, or what's leading to what things are leading to, that we're going to know the outcome of a particular change. Now, I'm not arguing for passivity. I mean, in the sense of I'm not doing anything about the world, but we don't know. And so if we hook our, if we hook all of our emotional stability and happiness and, 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 and energy on that, we're, we're doomed. Because the world's going to go in the direction we want for five minutes and then it's going to shift. Do we really want to be tied to the back of that horse? Because the world is not going to do what you want. Done. 
human society certainly isn't going to do what we want. So tying into that is a really bad strategy. Now the hope that I'm talking to kind of here is um, I don't think that hope is particularly sane-making. There's a deeper kind of hope that has to do with just human beings moving into the next generation. Like what it is to be um, energized because we know, not because we're progressing, I'm very suspicious of progress as a concept, um, but that we know there's a next generation, we know there are those not yet born. And to hold them in our hearts, we could use the word hope, right? But to hold them in our hearts, because I think we do this automatically without even knowing we're doing it. <laughs> I think we hold those not yet born in our hearts and it motivates us to do anything. I know, and that's why I think. What do you do with that? I think that's what people are. That's why people are wobbling, right now. I think that's why people are wobbling, and um, which is one of the reasons I bring it up. And what I do with that is I don't know. And the reality of it is, there probably will be a next generation. It just won't three, four, five, six generations away from now, they might not be living a world like the one we are living in. And they'll either be living, not living in a world because it'll be much more difficult, or, or the human species got sane and shifted things around and simplified and stopped doing all this nonsense. But they're not going to be living in the same kind of world. So a lot of times, I think where it becomes a problem is when these two kinds of hopes get mixed, right? So are we losing hope because we really believe there's not going to be a future generation of any kind? Or are we, not, or are we losing hope because they're not going to be living the world we want for them? And if they're not going to be living the world we want for them, then that is a territory for grief, not loss of hope. <laughs> are our times exceptional and if so how or why I, I think I think the world it didn't change with the ecological crisis the world changed with nuclear weapons and once there became the reality that human beings could wipe out the entire planet of our own volition, the world changed. That, that I don't think was a, an idea in the Middle Ages. Right? There just wasn't the power of our species just wasn't there yet to be able to do that kind of damage. 
So in some ways, I think we are in a different time. We're not in a different time because we're more evil now than we've ever been or, or we're more awful or anything like that. We've, we've caused damage the whole way through. You know, but, um, and we've loved each other the whole way through, right? So, but we have a power now that we didn't have before. And, and it's cataclysmic, it's, it's apocalyptic in a way, to use a Christian expression, it's an end, potential end. And that, I think, has us by the, has us in a kind of vice in a certain way. Because it's, what do, you, what do we do with that? And we have to take responsibility for ourselves in ways that we never have, that I don't even know if we know how to take responsibility for ourselves to the degree that we need to take responsibility for ourselves. And so in, in one way, no, we're the same as we've always been. And in another way, it's changed because of what we can do and what we are doing. We can launch weapons and destroy the world, but we can also just keep doing things exactly as we're doing, at least in the, develop, in the so-called developed countries, the rich countries. We keep doing what we're doing. It's gonna erode things. So in that sense, I think it's different. And that's why there's so much, I don't know, there's so much extreme responses to it and it's understandable. The extreme denial, the extreme, all, it's so understandable because it's overwhelming emotionally. Even for those who have accepted it, I mean, when we sit down and really accept it, it's enormous. I need this practice. I need this practice to live in this world. So I don't know if that gets there. Yeah, a little bit. I think a little bit's the best we can do. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for listening to this podcast offered by the Brooklyn Zen Center. Our programs are given free of charge and made possible by the donations we receive. For more information on supporting Brooklyn Zen Center, please visit the giving section of brooklynzen.org.